Sometimes a well-intentioned policy solution can turn out to be a band-aid for a gaping wound. This narrative that uh, minerals are the source of the conflict, a few people that observe this conflict think that's the case. Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Viglund. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're looking at conflict mining and the results of an effort to stop it in the Democratic Republic of Congo. A little over a decade ago, there was a movement to certify small artisanal mines as conflict-free, that sales of materials from those mines, including gold, were not being used to fund armed groups and human rights abuses throughout the country. In the U.S., new regulations required companies utilizing materials from the DRC to disclose and report their use of certified conflict-free suppliers. The results, as our guests will share have been mixed at best. My name is Hans Christensen. I'm a, the Caucasian Family Professor of Accounting and David G. Booth uh, Faculty Fellow at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. And my favorite pie is uh, apple pie. Hi, I'm Samuel Chang. I'm a second year PhD student um, in the accounting group at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. And my favorite pie is mixed berry pie. Hans and Samuel, let's start with a basic definition here, although I think most people are familiar at this point, especially with conflict diamonds. Uh, But what do we mean when we talk about things like conflict minerals, conflict mining? Uh, Hans, can you give us a bit of a background there? Yes. Uh, So basically, the way that it's defined legally is actually geographically. So it's, it's defined as being uh, minerals, uh, three di- uh, four different minerals, so 3TG, uh, tantalum, uh, tungsten, uh, tin, and gold. Uh, and it has to be from the countries of the DRC, Democratic Republic of the Congo, or one of the nine neighboring countries. Of course, if you think about it a little bit more broadly, conflict minerals would be minerals where some armed group, uh, non-state faction, is uh, receiving financial benefits from them, right? That could be because they control it or more often because they tax it in some way, right? And therefore, it helps finance their activities, war activities or the conflicts in the areas where they are. And this kind of became a a term that people were familiar with because of diamonds, right? What what prompted that? So with, with diamonds, there was even a Hollywood movie and different things. Like this is back in... 2000, there was something called the Kimberley Process, uh, which is today governed uh, the trade in diamonds and sort of a certification system. And that became sort of the idea that a number of NGOs, one of them, very prominent one, was the Enough Project, right? They sort of saw that this, these, this Kimberley Process was, you could get it through politically and it seemed to potentially have some effect. Uh, so then that's what inspired them to sort of push for that to try and address uh, the conflict in, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, right? It's a very long-standing conflict and where at least one narrative suggests that minerals mined in that area, there's a lot of minerals, contribute to the conflict. So as part of an effort to stem this problem, uh, Congress passed some mandates about disclosure of 
these mining areas as part of the Dodd-Frank Act back in 2010. Now, this is the act that was originated because of the 2008 financial crisis, but it included language about conflict minerals. Uh, What did that act require? There's actually a little bit of interesting background to that as well, because the first suggestions like that came uh, from the Enough Project and the political backers in, in Congress were quite different. Right? This was in 2008. There was a, uh, an act, and then again in 2009 proposed, which had nothing to do with disclosure, but had to do with sort of customs rule, right, where you couldn't import it, and the first one had penalties in it, the second one less so penalties, but both of them failed politically. And then what happened was that a couple of uh, years later, you sort of, you had the Dodd-Frank Act, right? And sort of, if you want something done in Congress, I suppose, and that's a little bit difficult to get through politically, you sort of want to put it on something, add it to something that's uh, moving. And the Dodd-Frank Act uh, was moving, right? So it was actually very late. The first time we see it in the draft of the Dodd-Frank Act was in March 2010, that this was added together with uh, uh, on, on mining safety in the U.S., also disclosure rule, uh, and something on payments to, to government, sort of to curb corruption. That was the idea there. So that was sort of added. So it, was, it, was pi- it piggybacked on legislation that exactly. was already Exactly, and it was then passed in June that year, I think it was enacted. So it was very, very late in the process, and it was sort of just added uh, to get it through politically. So out of that legislation then came a certification process, a a framework for determining what is considered conflict-free minerals. Uh, Samuel, you want to describe that for us? Yeah, so the certification process we focus on centers around small mines. These are artisanal small-scale mines that aren't directly owned by multinational corporations, um, but they are owned and operated by local people, typically a group of between 50 and 100 people that need um, sustenance in the area. And they'll come together and they will um, sort of get a piece of land and they'll begin to mine it. But the problem here is, of course, these smelters that they eventually sell the minerals to Um, They eventually, these smelters aggregate the minerals and sell them to multinational corporations. But the corporations are now required to disclose where these minerals came from. And the smelters, after you smelt the minerals, of course, they become like gold bars, say there's no way to track the source anymore. So these smelters now have pressure on them to sort of trace the minerals that they're getting backward in the supply chain. And so when those minerals get um, traced back, this is where this R certification scheme that we're exploring comes into play, because this certification scheme goes back to these artisanal mines and sort of allows these smelters to see whether the artisanal mines um, have conflict in the area and whether they're supporting armed groups in the area. So how does that certification work? I mean, is there an organization that says you're certified and how do they go about that process? So in the early years of the certification, there was a German corporation or um, non-governmental organization called BGR um, that would go in, that was contracted by the government of the Congo um, to go in and do these certifications. We are told that later on it was taken over by an American non-governmental organization. Um, And these certifications themselves, what they do is they send these organizations, send people to the DRC and they go to the mine physically and they check sort of the mine and the area immediately surrounding the mine and they 
collect several variables. The one we're interested in is whether there is an armed group in the area, for example. Um, and they also look at other characteristics such as forced labor and, and potentially um, child abuse in, at the mine. But the one we are looking at is whether there is an armed group sort of controlling the mine at the mine. And there's definitions in a manual for how they are to, to, to take a log of that. Okay. So this research takes a look at the impact of that certification and whether it's made any real difference. And you also looked at whether the certification process merely moved the conflict elsewhere. But let's start with how you went about measuring whether the certification did anything to thwart kind of that local militia activity. Uh, Hans, what was your data set? So the data set we are using is a basically a data set that reports like the number of conflicts and that and, and that is then divided into battles or violence against civilians and different sort of types, right? So that data set is based on newspaper like articles in the media and some NGO reporting and uh, similar so public sources in general. And then on the other side of our estimation here, like we, we look at the first certification that happens, right? Because we want to see what is the effect on conflict in an area, we have it located geographically, sort of very geolocated at a very sort of fine level. And then we can see what happens right around the mine, right? And then around these certifications, first time you certify it. Because once you certify it once, you do it every single year, at least once a year. You have to get recertified. Recertified. It has to be certified every year, at least once. And what did you find first about whether the certification made any difference to those areas and vil and really villages immediately surrounding a mine? Yeah, perhaps surprisingly, we find it has actually a quite strong effect on uh, conflict, right? And especially those conflicts that are initiated by armed groups, and not so not sort of protests that are more civilian protests, that type of thing. That's not the armed group, but the local population. So we find that it produced it in the vicinity of it. So 10 kilometers, that's a strong effect. And then as we go uh, out, it gets a little bit uh, uh, weaker, you know, as we move away from the mine geographically. And there is a difference here in how you're defining violence, right? So this is armed militias versus, say, riots that maybe aren't started by groups. Is that correct? So the data set itself has uh, sort of three main classifications. Um, there are uh, battles, there are civilian um, violence, and there is riots. So what it is, is battles is armed group versus armed group. Civilian violence is armed group attacking civilian group. Um, and then riots is potentially just a civilian form of violent riots or even nonviolent riots, right? So that's how we're able to differentiate between the activities that have armed group involvement versus those that don't. And so the numbers that Hans just cited, that was which group? Oh, the main results that we find, we find very strong results for battles and um, sort of less strong results for civilian violence, but we find no results at all for riots, which would be intuitive given that the former two groups are the ones that um, have armed group involvement. Okay. And Samuel, there is also a different result based on the material being mined, right? Gold versus, say, tin and tungsten. Why? 
Right. So for um, the minerals being mined, we know that there have been prior initiatives um, such as ITSCI that have targeted the 3T, for example, like the 3T being tin, tantalum and tungsten. Right. But this is really the first initiative that we know of that targets gold along with the other 3T. So basically, we expected also to observe a higher effect for gold simply because there hasn't been anything done in the past. And this is sort of like one of the first schemes that has targeted gold mines. I mean, in addition to that, um, also, we would um, anticipate to observe more of an effect for gold because gold is easier to smuggle, right? And if um, since gold is easier to smuggle, it is smaller, it's easily concealed. We would anticipate that such a certification scheme, since it, it, it acts on the smelters itself, um, would uh, have a greater effect on the, the um, considerations of the armed groups. Hmm. All right, let's move then to the second question, which was whether violence would simply move to another area rather than around a certified mine. So, you know, the idea that this could be sort of whack-a-mole, right? Well, if this mine is going to work to be certified conflict-free, we'll just take the fighting to another mine. Hans, what did you find? So we do find, and that's consistent with some other findings, but we, we find uh, three different results, basically, right? We find that at the aggregate territory level, which is sort of a broader geographical area than the 10 kilometers of radius around the mine that's much finer, we find there is basically no effect. If anything, it's a little bit positive on the conflict, right? But, but that could be for many reasons, right? But there is no aggregate effect. So that's the first thing that suggests that, yes, we, knew, we know something is happening around the mine, but not when we move to a bigger geographical unit, right? That suggests that it's moving. Then what we do is we look at, okay, uh, to sort of triangulate the results, we, we look at what is the distance between a certified mine and the closest conflict, and we see that move away, right? So conflicts have a further distance away from the mine, right? And then we can see that we, we find that there's an increase around mines that are not certified in an area further away. So that's the three results that, that suggest that in the aggregate, we don't see a reduction in the conflict. The one thing to keep in mind is that it's very difficult to attribute these aggregate effect, especially when we get to the territorial level, specifically to Dodd-Frank, because there are many events that are happening around this time. So it's, it, it's, it's hard to estimate. So it's less well identified, recorded less. It's not as easy to statistically show an aggregate effect as it is to show like in a very geographically fine area. But basically, it sounds like you can make this designation that the the goods that are being taken out of a certified mine are conflict-free, but that doesn't at all mean the conflict is gone. It just moved. Yeah, yes, I think that is exactly the interpretation of what our results suggest, that uh, if sort of your objective is just not to have a conflict around a mine, then that it's effective at that. Right, that's le- less conflict around the, the those that are certified than those that are not. But if you think about the conflict overall, then it doesn't seem to be very effective, right? So these groups are, it seems, quite innovative in moving around and coming up with other ways, right? or, or doing it in a different place, what they're doing. So then could you extrapolate that the more certified minds you have, the fewer places conflict can go. Is that fair to say, Samuel? 
Yeah, in fact, uh, we were asked this um, quite a few times by different uh, colleagues and and, and um, other faculty members. That is the limit in which um, this occurs, right? If they certify every single mine, then have we solved conflict, right? But in reality, number one, it's not so practical to certify every single mine, as these artisanal mines do sort of pop up and shut down based on the needs of um, the miners themselves. So it's it's not so practical to try to sort of get every single one while it's there. Even if you try to get all the larger ones that are more permanent, I would say that um, conflict also has other sources of financing, right? So for example, these armed groups can get financing also from farmers, from um, other sources, you know, within mainly agriculture, because agriculture is the main other sector that that is prominent in the DRC. Um, But there are, are other sources of funding. So I wouldn't say we can solve it by just broadly certifying all the mines. So then, Hans, what's the lesson here? It certainly seems like there is a law of unintended consequences here. Uh, Do good for one area, but that can then have a negative impact on another area because the conflict just moves, uh, you know, a negative impact on another population. Um, What do you take away from this? Well, I take away that these sort of easy solutions are very... It's very difficult to take sort of an easy solution such as this disclosure rule and solve such a, such a complex geopolitical issue, right? It's got to be more a diplomatic solution, or at least it has to be combined with with that. And indeed, the government has done that, right? They have had diplomatic efforts, but you need to get people to basically negotiate a peace, right? And it's so the, so there is a limited effect, uh, I think, when we have these complex problems of just having firms go and, in this case, do due diligence on where the minerals come from. So if you were, if you had the opportunity to impact policy, say there's a debate over another similar Dodd-Frank movement, um, what would you recommend? So I would recommend that, I mean, you go more for, in, for the source of the conflict, so the, this narrative that uh, minerals are the source of the conflict, uh, few people that observe this conflict think that's the case. Right? So you could take the minerals away f- from the DRC and you will likely still have a conflict. Right? This has gone on for decades and it has to do with uh, different ethnicities. There's a lot of displaced people from Rwanda that many of them came during the genocide in Rwanda in 92. And so you have have these conflicts about land rights, citizenship rights, and just sort of an inability to reach compromise and share political power. Yeah, I I think I agree with that. Yeah, we have just this very historical, very difficult conflict um, to... To, to solve and to think about, frankly, just just putting like this narrative around something that we feel like we can solve, which is um, the mineral crisis, right? We, we have a supply chain, we know how to sort of solve this. And just saying that maybe addressing this would address the conflict as a whole is not correct, right? Because we, we must have other initiatives that that sort of get at other sources and other um, causes of the conflict. Did any of this surprise you, Hans? Or does it seem to you that this follows a pattern of trying to fix something in a way that is maybe a bit easier than broader policy of tamping down on on militias would be? I, I think what surprised me the most is that we found quite strong effect 
around the mines. Because there are many ways, of course, you could avoid this likely. Corruption is a big problem, for example. I mean, how do you, I know it's, it's independent people that come and certify, but is that really going to work here? Yeah, so it's more surprising, I think, that we find an effect around the mine than that there's not an overall, or we cannot find evidence of an overall aggregate effect. That's not very surprising to me when you are, if you observe the conflict and what's going on. Hans Christensen, Samuel Chang, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having us. The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics and part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. If you're getting a lot out of the research that we discuss on this show, there is another University of Chicago Podcast Network show that you should check out. It's called Capital Isn't. This podcast uses the latest economic thing this podcast uses the latest economic thinking to zero in on the ways that capitalism is and more often is not working today. From the morality of a wealth tax to how to reboot healthcare to who really benefits from ESG, Capital Isn't clearly explains how capitalism can go wrong and what we can do about it. Listen to Capitalism. Listen to Capital Isn't, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.